Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Neighbors and classmates knew he was a big problem. Must always report such instances to authorities again and again. We did. Time and time again. Since he was in middle school, it was no surprise to anyone who knew him to hear that he was the shooter. The uh, emotion, the emotion in the voice of a classmate, schoolmate of Nicholas Cruz, the shooter in, uh, in Florida, at the Fort Lauderdale School, just, you hear that voice. And you get a, a sense of, of what the students are, are going through, what their, what their feelings are, and what the post-traumatic stress disorder issues are going to be for them, because there's no way that they're equipped, no way anybody's equipped for that kind of situation to develop around them. School shootings, kids' violence against other kids, you've heard this a million times. Now, when we were kids, things would be settled by wrestling after school usually, and that'd be it. Uh, no one brought guns to school. Nobody had a gun. A few brought knives. Uh, no one ever thought of running down school arrivals with a vehicle, and we'd be shocked at the idea of school security systems, which included locked school doors, walking through weapon uh, detectors. But today, how far behind American school violence is Canada, and how far behind are Canada's school kids? There have been gun incidents, there has been violence. There have been deaths. Just a few weeks ago, we spoke with a teachers' union vice president in Ontario who told us that elementary school teachers are wearing Kevlar to school in order to protect them from knife attacks by grade five kids. So now we have two gun incidents which have gripped public attention in this country. One is the trial of Saskatchewan farmer Gerald Stanley and the shooting death of uh, Colton Bushy, the Aboriginal man, and the other, of course, is this horrific Florida school shooting. And my guest, Dr. Gary Slutkin, and I spoke with Dr. Slutkin, I think about three years ago, about this very same issue, and it was about the gun violence in Chicago at the time. There had been something in the neighborhood of 7,000 shootings in the calendar year and so we spoke with Dr. Slutkin. He's a professor of epidemiology and international health, infectious diseases specialist at the University of Illinois at Chicago School of Public Health. He's also the founder of CureViolence.org, CureViolence.org. The program is international, hugely successful, operates in this country. And in Chicago, listen to this, in Chicago, there was a 41 to 73% drop in shootings and killings in cure violence zones. So where they used cure violence in zones in Chicago, the shooting violence, the shootings were down between 41 and 73%. This is a very serious effort. It's uh, in the top 10 NGOs globally. Dr. Slutkin, it's good to talk to you again. Thank you so much for the time. No, thank you for the opportunity to talk to you, and nice to be with you again, Mark. Yeah, when you hear about and when you see the developments coming out of Florida, what is your response as a as a physician? What is your response as uh, the uh, the innov innovator of CureViolence.org? Well, 
it, it's extremely frustrating, and also to watch the usual news coverage of it is is highly frustrating. The what what we um, have determined, I'm looking at this uh, problem of contagious violence in America or anywhere, is that um, it's it's really the health and public health sector that is missing here. In other words, in, in this particular case, um, uh, this young man who has a child and continued to be autistic with uh, attention deficit disorder, enormous psychological problems, expelled from school. Um, I think his brother had been committed. He himself had cut his arms in, on uh, Snapchat. He'd, he'd been screaming out for help. His, his uh, stepmother or his uh, adopted mother had just died. And the calls, uh, to us, this is a local health department issue. Instead of, I mean, you, it's okay to call law enforcement in nationally in Washington or whatever, or even locally, but it, law enforcement doesn't have exactly the tools for helping this person and preventing him from doing harm. Um, it's more of a, a regular, continuous outreach worker or interrupter, behavior change specialist that this person needed. And he had been crying for this kind of help and didn't get it. it but it, it isn't just normal, like mental health. This is uh, the way that we at Cure Violence and others around the country and around the world, as you point out, are doing violence prevention now. It's very specific, and it has there's responsibility within the system for finding uh, events, potential events, preventing them, preventing spread. And that's why um, this approach gets such strong results now. I want to talk to you about those... I want to talk to you about the results and talk to you about where in the world the program is being used. Canada is one place. But let me go back to the beginning for you. How did you make the connection between violence, and at the time Chicago's gun violence was epidemic, still is, I guess, uh, but not nearly as much where the uh, CureViolence.org program is practiced. How did you make the connection between, between violence and public health? Well, as you know, I used to work at World Health Organization on um, diseases that spread that we know about, like Ebola and cholera and AIDS, and many of these are be- issues of contagious behavior. And we have methods in public health that very few people know about and being able to reach people and um, help them change their behaviors to safer and healthier behaviors. And we use outreach workers, and in this case, violence interrupters, and other cases, other types of health workers. And this is the bread and butter of how so many diseases have been gone in, they have gone into the past, and it's also the reason why we live longer, and so on. So when I came back to uh, the U.S., I, I began to um, hear about the violence in, in U.S. cities, and I didn't think that what was being done made any sense. And as I um, was analyzing it, it had all the properties of every other contagious infectious diseases. And um, not to go into details, but it spreads similarly from one person to another, and these mass shootings are another example of this. Suicides are another example of this. And in, in this case, you know, spread is sometimes um, by uh, social media or even from regular media. So 
And we just began to attempt to uh, use the same methods that we use for preventing Ebola, cholera, or AIDS, and it works. And it's now there's been seven or eight independent evaluations, and I mean, Chicago went off the hook when um, about 13 out of 14 communities lost funding because the state wasn't funding anything, but didn't have a budget. And now it's coming back into um, operation. But it's, New York has uh, 18 communities, I think, going up to 22 this year. Los Angeles has something like it, and Baltimore is working. Um, New Orleans, Philadelphia, all many, many Latin American countries are using this. It's been used. Cubans has been used in the election in Kenya and prison violence in um, uh, the UK to reduce violence recruitment. And now we're working in the Middle East. But you know, there it, we're it's an uphill uh, struggle because people are still looking at violence as something something else rather than a health issue. Mm-hmm. This kid had a health issue. People who are doing violence. They themselves have a contagious health issue, which is interruptible and preventable, and that's what we do in health and public health. So this is the sector. This is the way of looking at it. This is where the methods are showing our results now. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. It was after Columbine that uh, I was talking to a dad who had, a think, a 15 or 16-year-old girl in school in Hamilton, Ontario, and he said to me, when I kiss my daughter goodbye in the morning, I fully expect to see her that evening. And it was uh, it was it was a, a statement that resonated with so many people following Columbine. But the sense was that this was probably a one-off. It was never going to happen again. And of course, it has. And then there's the additional violence that happens in communities, and we've focused a great deal in North America on Chicago and thousands of shootings. In that city, the Cure Violence program, CureViolence.org, that we're talking to Dr. Slutkin about, Dr. Gary Slutkin, who who uh, conceived of this program and is the founder of it. Just looking at some stats from Chicago, um, seven communities in Chicago that used that are using the CureViolence.org program, forty-one to seventy-three percent reduction in shootings, forty percent reduction. Uh, cooling of hot spots, 100% reduction in retaliation homicides in five to eight communities, or five of eight communities. And overall, the impact of the ceasefire program is significant to moderate to large size. It's, uh, it's really amazing. So, Dr. Slutkin, if we, maybe we can look at Chicago, because that's the, sort of the model that people have talked about for a long time. How does cure violence work in that environment? How do you employ it? How do you engage it? How do you measure the success? Well, the idea, um, ideal formulation of of cure violence, and you can imagine this in Chicago or New York or in um, this uh, town in uh, Florida, is that the health department oversees, as it does the overseeing of any health epidemic, to ensure that it doesn't happen, that epidemics don't happen, don't get started, don't continue, and that prevention is in place. And so there, at, um, at the top level, there's a health department. Then you have community groups who are very, very local, who are selected for their knowing what's going on in their immediate neighborhood. And they hire, and we at Turbines help them select the people who 
have the access and trust and credibility of the people in the neighborhood who are having problems. The people we are choosing, the people who are trusted by them, whether they're um, trusted by the kids in school, the kids who are out of school, the kids who are most involved in violence are most likely to. And those particular individuals, and maybe 10 and maybe 20 or 25 of such people, they are now trained in every day knowing what's going on, who's upset about what, who might be thinking about violence. And then if when that um, they get alerted, and they get alerted because, um, for one thing, they're talking to people all day, you know, who's upset, how's everything, how's everything in the school, you know, are you concerned about anything, what's going on in the neighborhood, what happened at the party last night. They get information because it's, it's confidential and they're there to help people. And so the buy-in isn't a problem because everybody wants the service. Everybody, so many people want the help, and so many people have already seen the results of violent events not having happened that they were worried about and people getting redirected. So those workers every day are interacting with people who are considered to be at the highest risk, but they don't just call them up or watch them or, like, um, survey them. They're talking with them all the time and helping them change their thinking and change their life course with whatever is needing and needed. And they're very, very highly trained in persuading people and cooling people down and also in changing their thinking and then connecting them with services and staying with them for weeks, months, sometimes up to a couple years or more to ensure that they get on a better path. So it, and one worker can be looking after or helping 20 or 40 people you know, and making sure, you know, it's just kind of the opposite of, in a way, law enforcement, which is just looking to see if you do something wrong and it takes 20 people to watch someone. This is where one person can um, help 20 people, and it's about helping. And then and they make sure that they're on a dir- direct course. And so this is very measurable. This is what we do in public health and epidemiology, is that we're, we're measuring everything. We're measuring how people are getting better. We're tracking everything. And then, of course, you know, the bottom line is that communities end up having you know, very, very few um, shootings or killings. There's some communities in Baltimore and New York that have gone a year, two years, and up to three years at zero that used to have, used to be some of the more dangerous communities in these cities. That's amazing. It, it, really is, it really is amazing, and I can see how... Uh, gang members who would be perhaps inclined, not, not perhaps, but definitely be inclined to engage in revenge activity if there was an assault or if there was a shooting, they would immediately say, look, our code requires that we get back at them and we up the ante. So if the intervention is in place before the incident happens, then when the incident happens, the intervention is going to help and there'll be more buy-in as the community calms down. Yeah, no one really wants to do violence, actually. No. And, no one, and they just need to be aware and sure that they themselves are not going to be hurt and that they're socially safe among their friends for not doing it. Tell me this. Uh, we, we have about 90 seconds left. Tell me this. How much buy-in do you have? And I know that the uh, mayors of the United States just incredibly and 
in numbers endorse the program. But how much buy-in do you have from communities, from states, whether we're talking the United States or whether we're talking Canada or anywhere else, with people who with governments that say we understand the value of this, let's let's get into it, let's fund it, and let's let's benefit from from uh, cure violence. I, it's it's just growing. I mean, we cure violence get, gets calls from cities and from communities and even from countries, um, several calls a day. So it's it's growing. However, you know the the resourcing of health and public health approaches to reducing epidemic violence is nowhere near the other sectors, and this is really the missing piece. The the epidemic control, public health, intervention, outreach, interruption, behavior change, helping people not do these events. Well, I can only say to you, as I said last time, congratulations for what you're doing and what you're achieving, the lives you're saving, the communities you're helping, giving people a completely different outlook on life, and providing opportunities for them to actually progress in their lives and not end up with their lives shortened or impacted very negatively because of violence that would otherwise take place. Thank you, Dr. Slutkin, for joining us. Thanks for the Cure Violence program. And everybody, it's cureviolence.org. Talk to your politicians about getting involved in funding. We'll talk to you again, Dr. Slutkin. Thanks again. Thank you, Roy, for being an educator. All the best to you, sir. Thank you. Dr. Gary Slutkin from Chicago. CureViolence.org. Incredibly successful. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. You know, we lost 17 lives on Valentine's Day. That's supposed to be the International Day of Love. We're going to take the love that we got lost on Wednesday, and we're going to spread that over the next day, weeks, months, and maybe even years. That was the principal of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, on uh, the mass shooting by Nicholas Cruz. I was just looking at some of the stories that have to do with uh, school shootings in this country. Not so long ago, we were talking about the 2007 shooting at C.W. Jeffries in Toronto. Jordan Manners was 15, and he was shot and killed in the school, grade 9 student, Two charged with first-degree murder, and um, after two trials, they were found not guilty, but Jordan Manners was dead. And it was after that shooting that it was decided the Toronto police would be stationing an officer in schools under the auspices of the TDSB, the Toronto District School Board. And uh, just a couple of months ago, the board decided it would no longer no longer wanted the uh, police officers in the schools. I still don't think that's a wise decision, but it's a political decision, politically correct decision. It wasn't a wise decision. Uh, Dawson College, 2006. Uh, One woman was killed, 19 injured. 25-year-old Kim Veer Gill was the shooter, shot himself after the, uh, the rampage. University of Alberta in Edmonton, 2012. Travis Baumgartner shot four of his co-workers, three of them fatally. Um, 2013, Les Racines de Vie Montessori in uh, Quebec in Gatineau. 2013, uh, two men were killed during the shooting at the daycare 
There's quite a, a number of Canadian school shootings. So what is it that these shooters, the individuals who do commit these horrific crimes, have in common? What is it that stands out about their behavior? What is it that stands out about them that can act as a predictor for the violence that they're going to bring to others? Dr. Frank Farley is the past president of the American Psychological Association. He's the L.H. Carnell Professor of Psychological Studies in Education at Temple University in Philadelphia. And, uh, well, he's, he's one of ours. He's former, uh, he's Canadian, former, as I, did I say he was the past president of the American Psychological Association? Uh, Frank, thank you so much for coming back on the program and talking about this incredibly important issue because one of the issues, one of the questions that's asked constantly is, and it's been asked in the past few days, was there something that particularly pointed to uh, Cruz being, Nicholas Cruz being the shooter? Now, before you answer that, let me ask the studio to just get that clip ready, the one that we played at the top of the show with Emily Gonzalez. Let me know when you've got that. Okay, let's have a listen. Neighbors and classmates knew he was a big problem, must always report such instances to authorities again and again. We did, time and time again. Since he was in middle school, it was no surprise to anyone who knew him to hear that he was the shooter. Frank, again, thank you for coming on the program. There's a classmate of uh, Nicholas Cruz talking about they knew from... They had a sense that he was going to be, if there was a shooter, it was going to be him. So how obvious, how evident is it to those who are paying attention that somebody may be on that track? Well, um, uh, I'm getting, by the way, some some feedback. We'll, we'll see if we can work on that. Anyway, what uh, what she was revealing is frankly, what we would call hindsight bias. And it's a cognitive bias where people say, oh, yeah, I, I saw that coming, or I could have predicted that. Mm -hmm. So it's very hard evidence uh, to s accept. It's just not very good evidence. And the idea that there is some clearly understandable common ground among multiple uh, murders and murderers is weak. It's there's it's very weak evidence, Roy, that links these various people. In this current case, in my opinion, the number one phrase that should have made everybody stand up and take notice was when he said he wanted to become a professional school shooter. Mm -hmm. He should have been visited immediately upon that appearing online. And we know the FBI dropped the ball on this. Indeed. No question. And the FBI and all the other agencies have got to upgrade, you know, their technology. They, they've got to be tracking this stuff. There are programs that will recognize semantics and, and the meaning in sentences that will pick this stuff up. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. I'm back to Dr. Frank Farley, the L.H. Carnell Professor of Psychological Studies in Education at Temple University in Philadelphia, the former president of the American Psychological Association. And we're talking about school shooters and school shootings. The American Psychological Association has articulated 
the personality factors which can and do lead to terrible loss of life, such as took place at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. So, Frank, I hope the phone is better now. So, Can you talk to us a, a bit about what the factors are that the APA has discovered are consistent among these people who perpetrate such horrendous violence? Yes. Um, we have three broad categories, and a lot of human behavior fits under one of the, or one or more of these three. One uh, we call expression. Uh, that's where violence is used to express personal feelings, like anger, uh, frustration. One of the oldest theories of aggression is called the frustration-aggression theory, which is, you know, your frustration just builds up to such a point that you lash out and you become aggressive in one way or another. Uh, anger. You know, the world is full of people who have anger control problems. And um, my favorite phrase that captures that is, who are you looking at? Mm -hmm. Who are you looking at? You know, where somebody takes mm -hmm. offense at someone who is looking at them in a, what they think is a strange way. I've heard that and in bars. I've, I've seen fights start with that. Yes, indeed. And uh, so that's what we call expression. The second broad category is manipulation. And here, the violence is used as a way of controlling others, you know, getting something that the perpetrator wants. So, for example, Jeffrey Dahmer, who was a world-famous serial killer, he admitted straight up that his motivation for killing over 25 people was control. He wanted to control them. And so he would drug them and then just do terrible things to their body. He would drill into their body, doing all sorts of terrible things while they were alive, but drugged. So control was his. Uh, the third category is retaliation. The third and final category is retaliation. And I, I have a sense that might be a big one in this uh, shooting that we're talking about today. But that's retaliating against those people who the perpetrator believes uh, has hurt them or wronged them. So uh, the old-fashioned the old term, uh, going postal, you remember that term? Of course, right? yes. Going postal was where a worker gets fired or gets downgraded or something negative is directed at that worker, and they go back to the job site and they take out, they retaliate. So that's a big one. And in this case, you know, this guy had been expelled from school. He seemed to have a lot of other rejections going on in his life. There was this incredible number of 39 police visits uh, checking him out, and obviously that failed, but the 39 police visits. Um, and so he really was an unusual case, and maybe he just, this retaliation motivation just built up and built up and built up, and then the the uh, expressive side of himself, you know, that he just got more and more angry and frustrated. The cops were coming at him all the time. And uh, then he decided to get his own back. So, so, they, so the certainly there were, enough red, there were enough red flags, clearly enough red flags, to at least be interested in this guy. And he also had a, a, a great love 
This doesn't mean anything necessarily, but he had a great love of firearms, and he had a collection of firearms. Yeah. As a young, as a, as a kid, a high school kid. Indeed. There's something, Roy, that we, in, in psychological science, we call the weapons effect. And that is the effect of the mere presence of a weapon. And it seems that the mere presence of a weapon can sort of exacerbate aggressive feelings, simply makes them, it potentiates them or makes them more, more important. So this could have been, he could have seen this as his tool for getting even. Is that right? Indeed, yes. He had the tools. But, but, but Frank, of them. Frank, what about self-control? Is it abs- completely absent in some people, is there, or is it just overwhelmed in, in some people? Because we all supposedly have breaks on our behavior, on aberrant behavior. It's, it's part of our DNA, I hope, to not participate in aberrant behavior, and 99.9999% of the population has those breaks and hopefully never has the thoughts to go ahead and do something totally insane. But if they do, they still control it. What, what happens to somebody like uh, this, this cruise? Well, Roy, you put your finger on one of the really key ingredients in the recipe. And there are a lot of ingredients, but this is, in my opinion, one of the key ones. Sort of impulse control, self-control. Here in the United States, the American prisons are full of people with impulse control problems. They just can't, you know, put the brakes on. Mm-hmm. And once they get angry, then horrible things happen, and they don't seem to have the self-control to stop it. One reason why it's important to focus in on something that's concrete, like impulse control, is we can work on that with kids, you know, in the schools and in the families, where we teach kids self-control, impulse control, you know, um, think before you act, as opposed to acting before you think. And that's a trainable, learnable habit. Mm-hmm. And in the schools, we should be teaching it at the earliest possible level. Well, let me ask you and this. What does society do? How do you see, what are the options for society to preclude a, a, a Nicholas Cruz from doing what he did, even if all of the other flags are not met? What's the last line of defense? I say there are two broad categories here. Number one is gun control, and Canada is a model of it. Canada has less than 200 gun homicides a year for 35 million people. It's unheard of. Here in Philadelphia, with 1.1 million people, we have twice that number every year. So Canada has got a formula that works, and the the rest of the world needs to know what that formula is. So gun control in the United States has been another lost cause for a long time. And in the wake of the uh, Sandy Hook shootings, um, everyone felt, uh, certainly me, that we'd finally get some action on gun control, and it did not happen. So maybe, maybe this time with the Parkland uh, massacre, we might get some some action on gun control. I'm not going to hold my breath, but I'm hoping for such action. So gun control is essential. The second thing, and you hinted at that when you mentioned earlier the Toronto situation with the school board. Mm-hmm. To me, the second situation, the first one is gun control. The second one is sight, S-I-T-E, sight control. I think you've got to harden the sites where, where we're talking about school shootings, 
harden the sites at schools. And for you, you mentioned that uh, police in the schools had been suspended in Toronto, apparently. Mm-hmm. That's a mistake, in my view. I think you see it that way also. I do. And in the States, it's essential. You know, uh, metal detectors and other technological uh, wonders of our time, they can detect almost all weapons. They work in courthouses. We've been using them for years in the courthouses of America. They are working beautifully. We need those installed in every school in in this country. Yeah, Frank, I have to stop because of the clock, but I'll tell you what. We've gotten to a point now I hope we would never get to, and you are, you're talking about the situation in the United States, where schools have become, instead of a place where there's just learning taking place, there's also a places where the parents are often afraid to send their kids, and that's, that's so wrong, and that has to change. Dr. Farley, it's always great talking to you. We'll do so again, hopefully not uh, after a horrid situation like the one in Florida, but certainly appreciate you coming on and providing the information. Happy to do it. Thanks, Frank. Thanks, Roy. Dr. Frank Farley, past president of the American Psychological Association on The Green Show. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Over the last couple of days, I've, uh, I've had this thought about our prime minister. I spent a lot of time thinking about our prime minister and the job that he's doing or isn't doing for this country. And... I think more and more about a line that he uses insistently and consistently, and that is, Canadians can do better, Canadians must do better, Canada can do better, Canada must do better. And the common denominator for Justin Trudeau stating those particular challenges appears to be Issues that have to do with race. And there was the 11-year-old Muslim girl who claimed that her hijab was being snipped away on the way to school. We have that clip. Here's what Mr. Trudeau had to say before, before we knew that it wasn't a true story. Here's what he said. This is a country of openness and welcome uh, and not a country uh, where that is in any way acceptable. And uh, uh, that is something we all need to remind ourselves of uh, today and every day, that we are better than this. It never happened. But Justin Trudeau could not contain himself. He couldn't wait to find out if it was true or not. He had to... Issue is we can do better, we must do better, thinking. And then last week after the uh, verdict in the Gerald Stanley trial in Saskatchewan, here's what the Prime Minister had to say from Los Angeles. Indigenous people across this country are uh, angry, they're heartbroken, uh, and I know Indigenous and non-Indigenous Canadians alike Uh, know that we have to do better. We have to do better. We have to do better. Here's another quote from the Prime Minister that again had to do with the Gerald Stanley case. I know I speak on behalf of millions of Canadians when uh, I say that our hearts go out to uh, Colton Bushy's family, uh, his mom Debbie, uh, his friends, uh, and the entire community. I'm not going to comment on the process that led us to this point today. But I am going to say we have 
come to this point as a country uh, far too many times. All right, we've come to this point too far too many times. We can do better. We must do better. We have other audio of the Prime Minister saying that. And then there was the, and we'll play it for you later on in the hour, there's a very strange reply that he had for a town hall question from a dad. And the dad asked him, and very courteously asked the Prime Minister, he has two, two daughters, should he be concerned, I'm paraphrasing, should he be concerned about the ISIS individuals, the ISIS terrorists returning to Canada with the sanctioning of the Prime Minister of Canada who said that ISIS returning ISIS members could extraordinarily contribute to this country's well-being. Prime Minister rattled on about, well, he made it sound like uh, the ISIS terrorists were refugees or standard immigrants. I want to play that back for you a little later on, but my question is, what is Justin Trudeau trying to say? And who's he saying it to? Is he saying we're a country of racists? Because frankly, that's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing Justin Trudeau accuse Canadians of being racists. And that is extremely disturbing. Extremely disturbing. We can do better. We must do better, not waiting for a situation to be fully complete before he offers an opinion. And it's generally the same opinion. Canada can do better. Canadians must do better. Is this what he was elected for? Don't think so. Carlene Nation has been in the news business for almost 30 years. And uh, she was at major uh, television stations, CTV in Toronto, for more than 20 years. For 12 years, she was the diversity reporter for CTV in Toronto. She's a media specialist. Her company is One Nation PR, Inc. Carlene, when you listen to, and thank you for joining us, when you listen to the quotes, when you listen to the prime minister say the things that he said, when you think about what he's done, what his message has been over a protracted period of time, what are you hearing? I'm hearing exactly what you just stated. He is basically creating wedges between Canadians of different ethnic backgrounds, of different religious backgrounds, Indigenous, non-Indigenous Canadians. He's constantly doing it because he thinks it will somehow uh, put him up in the polls and make him look better come 2019 election. I don't know where he gets his strategy from or why he thinks it's a good thing. He started out when he was elected and shortly thereafter there was a, a motion M103 in Parliament that he pushed aggressively, uh, the anti-Islamophobia bill. So instead of coming out with something that brought Canadians together, that talked about our greatness as a country, uh, about Canadians of all ethnic, all gender, all religious uh, diversity, uh, uh, um, uh, um, disability backgrounds, etc., instead of bringing us and uniting us as the prime minister, he is constantly playing this game of race, 
what I call race baiting, putting wedges between us to try to make him somehow look good. It, it's, it's very disturbing, very alarming, and Canadians, I'm a black Canadian, I was born in Jamaica, I came here, my mother's been a Canadian for 50 years, I've been here for, for, for 30, 30 odd years. We come to this country because we love this country, Canadians of all backgrounds. And I worked as a diversity producer. I was with CTV for almost 22 years. I've been in the business for 25 years. And 12 of my 22 years was as diversity producer, where we generated stories talking about Canadian stories of every single background. We are a great nation, a great people. We welcome people. Canadians marry each other. Canadians work with each other. Canadians live and coexist very well with each other. We have instances and areas of challenges that we must deal with, but it is not helpful to have a prime minister constantly spouting about and trying to spouting nonsense i i would say and trying to put wedges between us and to divide us to divide us as a nation mm-hmm. it's it is to my mind quite disturbing and quite disgraceful that's not what he was elected to do and since he was elected in 2015 i can hardly point to anything that he has accomplished well i can't either and i'm looking at another story he was in an event for black history month And the quote from uh, Trudeau at the event is, it's time we recognize that anti-black racism and unconsciousness bias does exist. Uh, He went on to say, for too many people, and um, anti-black racism, discrimination, and inequality are part of their daily lives. This is unacceptable. Canada can and must do better. We have here in... certainly in Canada, issues with our black communities uh, where our children are not uh, doing as well in schools, where we have issues around carding, where we have issues of young black people getting caught up in the justice system when they didn't necessarily need to be there, issues around police violence involving young black men. We have these issues. These are issues that we must work on, yes, but we've had successive liberal governments, whether they be federal or provincial. We've had a provincial government here in Ontario for 15 years, and things have gotten worse. They haven't done anything to address anti-black racism. They spout about it and talk about it in generalities as if they're doing something. They haven't done much. So the black community here, of which I am a part of, and which I'm very strongly outspoken in support of, and which I'm proud to be a part of, a black Canadian, we all have a lot of work to do. We can't sit around and wait for people like uh, the Kathleen Wynne government here in Ontario or the Justice Trudeau government to do stuff for us. They're doing nothing. He cares nothing about our black communities. They're using the black community along with other communities as political props mm-hmm. in their little racialized game. And we, we won't be part of that nonsense. Our communities have to fight to get political power. We see very few black people in, 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 at the federal level, at the provincial level, even at the municipal level. We as a community must fight and run for office and be part of the government and be part of the solution for our communities and for all of us here as Canadians. We're part of a great nation. There are tons of opportunities here. I came here as a pregnant teenager. I had my child. I'm a teen mother. 
and uh, and I raised my child with the great support of my mother and my family. I raised my son. He's now in his 30s. I'm very proud of him. I got nothing from the government. I came, I worked as a dishwasher, a night cleaner, a kitchen help, a waitress, a hostess, paid for university, failed first year in university, went back, did university over, graduated with a degree in politics, did a number of different things. I ran for office. I didn't win, but it was the greatest thing to do. So I'm saying we're not victims. And I don't want him talking about the black community and using the black community as a prop. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. I'm deeply concerned when the leaders of this country, and in, in, in the case of Mr. Trudeau currently, when the leader of Canada appears to be playing the race card, you agree that he is? He definitely is. And if we go back to that... Um, that uh, speaking engagement he he held in in um, in Edmonton, where the father got up and asked if he why is he allowing ISIS members to come back to Canada, and he he veered off into this ranting, rambling statement comparing legitimate refugees to. ISIS, putting them all on the same footing and saying ISIS can have a powerful voice in Canada. We really have to question uh, question the Prime Minister and, and question his motives for doing this. It is another example of, of, um, of him calling Canadians racist. And, and, and basically, I think Canadians, we as Canadians, no matter whether we're white, black, uh, what, what, Asian, South Asian, uh, uh, whatever, our religious background, our ethnic backgrounds, our gender backgrounds, no matter who we are, we should be saying to this Prime Minister, we want to ensure that when people come to our great nation, that there are safety, safety uh, um, uh, provisions put in place. In Syria and Iraq, as you know, there was this war raging with this homicidal maniac, these, these genocidal murderers, ISIS, slaughtering people, whether they're uh, a Shia, Sunni, Kurds, Yazidis, Christians, they, they were slaughtering everybody. So, of course, these Canadians are, these people are coming to Canada, and we, of course, Canadians of all backgrounds, welcome. They were rushing to help and assist and help That's right. these uh, people, these refugees, That's right. and to ensure that they're comfortable. But it's, so when we ask these questions, we're not racists. We have a prime minister who's branding us such. In the case of Gerald Butts, when Gerald, when Pete, when when Trudeau made that ridiculous statement about, oh no, it's not ma- humankind or mankind, it's people kind, and he was mocked, mocked mercilessly internationally. And then he, Gerald Butts came out and said, well, people criticize the prime minister; they're Nazis. I mean, the nerve of these people. Why do we as Canadians allow the Prime Minister, allow Gerald Butts to get away with saying these things for branding us? Why are we so, so weak? Why yeah. are we sheep? Why are we not demanding an apology Carleen, from Gerald Butts? We, uh, 
We have to take a break. I thank you for joining us. I'll have you back, if you will. Absolutely. Thank you. (laughs) You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. I will never forget listening to an old Lenny Bruce comedy album. Lenny Bruce was more of a social commentator than than a comedian. And he was at Berkeley uh, University. And this would have been, oh my, uh, the, uh, the album was, I bought it, uh, I bought it used, so it had been around, so been out for about 10 years before I, before I even bought it. So he probably was there in the early 60s. And Lenny Bruce said, marijuana is going to be legal in 10 years. You want to know why? Because all the law students are smoking it now. So by the 1970s, by the time uh, Brewer and Shipley's One Talk Over the Line came out, should have been legal. And we've had debates in this country back and forth about legalizing marijuana. We had uh, the situation with Jean Chrétien and his then Minister of Justice, whose name escapes me, um, talking about decriminalizing marijuana. And Paul Martin jumped on that when he became the prime minister. Paul Martin came into this very studio as prime minister, and he made the case for decriminalized marijuana. And I said to him, you know, you're still going to require people to buy their cannabis from very criminalized drug dealers. Oh, because you're decriminalizing the marijuana, but you're not decriminalizing the act of buying it. And you're not decriminalizing the actual drug dealer, so you're telling people to go and do business with a criminal. And then along came Justin Trudeau, and he, in 2015, assured everybody that he was going to legalize marijuana. Wasn't it supposed to be uh, July 1st of last year? I think it was supposed to be July 1st of last year, Canada Day, and then they backed it up. And now they're backing it up again. My feeling is they're looking at a, at, a, at, a, at an initiative that they consider to be a vote-getter, and so they'll back it up as far as they can and as close as they can to the 2019 election so that they can maximize whatever positives may come from people getting stoned on Election Day 2019. It's just my theory. Actually, my dog told me that last night. It woke me up. I'm communicating with my puppy. Okay, enough of this. Enough of this. We need some sanity here. Senator Denise Batters joins me on the Roy Green Show. She's a senator from Saskatchewan, conservative senator. She's a Blue Jays fan. She's a fan of Ryder Nation. I have no idea what you're, why you're a New York Islanders fan. Because I started cheering for them in uh, the 1980s when I was a kid, when they were winning Stanley Cups. Oh, front runner. Maybe a lot of people start cheering for teams to be a bit of a bandwagon jumper. Plus, they had a ton of players from Saskatchewan at the time, like Brian Trotche and Clark Gillies, people like that. Okay, I thought you were just a front runner. No, no, (laughs) not not usually. (laughs) Anyway, I'm a Habs fan, and you know where they're going this year. So, Senator, nowhere, they're going nowhere. Senator, uh, the, the whole issue of this marijuana pledge by Mr. Trudeau, who admitted that while he was a member of parliament, he actually 
indulged. He had a few puffs, he said. I think it's probably a few puffs and a few more, which was criminal activity, but, you know, why why get picky? Uh, So now they're backing it up and backing it up, and you took his ministers to task. What happened? Yes, um, I did. Uh, We've just recently received the marijuana bills in the Senate, and... uh, and soon after we came back after the winter break, um, we had the justice minister and the health minister in front of the Senate as a whole. It's actually quite rare, and we had television cameras in there, which was nice to have um, and look forward to having that all the time. But, uh, yes, I took those two particular ministers to task that day because uh, there were some significant questions that Canadians want answered, and Canadians have continued to tell me for the last two years since this government came into power that they want answered. And some big problems that I see with this particular um, law from the justice perspective is um, we have a massive court delay crisis in Canada already with a glut of impaired driving cases being a major reason behind that. And frankly, the justice minister is doing too little to combat that crisis. We have first-degree murderers who are going free. Um, And then we just recently found out that the justice minister's own department wrote a memo last year showing that legalization of marijuana they find is likely to flood our system with thousands of new impaired driving cases. So legalization of marijuana will even worsen the court delay crisis in Canada, yet no one in the Trudeau government, not the Justice Minister, not the Public Safety Minister, will answer if they believe legalization will decrease impaired driving rates in Canada. And of course that is, they're not answering this question, they're evading those tough questions because they know legalization of marijuana will increase impaired driving rates, just as we've seen already in Colorado being the case. So when you ask the question, what do they say? They talk about a lot of other things that totally evade the question. They what talk a surprise. Other ways they're trying to um, reduce impaired driving rates, many of which actually we just found out at our legal committee, are things that our conservative government was um, had introduced already into law two and a half years ago. Um, and we didn't have a time to pass them because we had the election, and then we unfortunately did not win the election. But the Trudeau government, if they were actually trying to act on impaired driving and get that situation under control in Canada, they could have implemented those things two and a half years ago. Uh, you have a. I was looking at your uh, Twitter account, and I follow you on Twitter, and you follow me. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I, sh- I should say, by the way, Danny Kader doesn't follow me anymore, but now it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> no, it does not. <laughs> not that it ever did. But uh, but you have uh, hashtag just not ready. Right. Just not ready. Do you have a I sense that they back, were? Yeah. Do you think they were ever ready? I'm not talking about the battery now. Do you think they were ever ready to unroll or to, to roll out their, uh, I almost, almost got into a zigzag paper there for a moment. Um, did you ever, do you have a feeling they were ever ready to roll out the, uh, the marijuana legislation? As they said they were? I don't think actually worries too much about being ready to do things. They just make promises and then they, sometimes they keep them, sometimes they, most of the time they don't. I think this is all to struggle to meet this um, Justin Trudeau's political deadline. And actually, it was prior to July 1st, this coming year, 2018 was always their promise. But they're not going to meet that now. And they're anxious to not have yet another broken promise as they have on electoral reform and so many other um, issues. So I think they're not too concerned about the details. They like to just take some photos, um, put out some promises, whether they keep them or not. They think that if they um, look happy while they're doing it, people won't remember. But people do remember, especially when you're dealing with some significant issues like this, Um, you know, particularly the types of things that I was asking the health minister. I mean, you have the health minister 
in front of the Senate as well that particular day, and I was asking her about the major concerns people have raised to me consistently, including high school teachers, where they're talking about this this Trudeau government is going to have an age of 18 as the minimum age um, allowed to use um, marijuana once it's legal. And this is despite the fact we have significant mental health effects on the developing mm. brain that have been um, talked about by yeah. the Canadian Psychiatric yeah. Association, who says it should be age 25. Canadian Medical Association says it should be age 21. Yet this government wants to have it 18. And uh, when I asked this particular health minister about that, her entire two-minute answer doesn't even say the words mental health. I mean, it's so frustrating. So, you know, with that and the fact that they're going to allow every household in Canada to potentially have four huge marijuana plants in their home, and uh, I don't know how they can possibly be saying that they are protecting children. They're not. And the issue of impaired driving is so critically important, and it's not properly addressed yet. In fact, at the end of this hour, I'm going to be speaking with Marquita Collias, of British Columbia. She's the founder of Families for Justice. Her 22-year-old daughter was killed by a drunk driver who received the usual drunk drivers who kill slap on the wrist sentence. And I'm just, I, I'm fearful that when we, we do encounter, and we will, uh, high drivers who kill, it'll be the same situation where they receive two, three-year sentence and maybe do 14 or 15 months. This is This is just... It's it's not they're not ready and I don't think I don't think they're they're going to be ready because the questions aren't answered. No, and I mean every day that our Senate Legal Committee studies these bills, we see even more and more problems with them, yeah. more and more reasons that these bills aren't ready to become law in Canada. Like just um, in the last couple of weeks, we've heard testimony from different. Um, you know, very knowledgeable organizations talking about how these testing devices they're going to use for drugs have an optimal temperature range of between 5 degrees Celsius and 35 degrees Celsius above. And I said, in Canada, this is not California. Um, So if it's outside that optimal temperature range, then there's going to have to be additional um, evidence tendered by lawyers. And, you know, that's just ripe then for a ton of, of challenges to these particular laws. We have roadside testing devices that even the justice minister fully admits are not, the science is not fully evolved, it's not accurate. We have police forces that are struggling to train enough officers as drug recognition experts because, again, they don't have time. They've asked for more time. The Trudeau government has refused that. And then last week, it was shocking, we had top officials from the Public Safety Department and the RCMP not even being familiar with the most basic training components for this new regime. So all we've seen all all the way around, is everyone is not ready. People have asked for more time. Provinces, municipalities, police forces across the country, Indigenous um, communities have asked for more time. Funding arrangements have not yet been worked out, yet the Trudeau government continues to push ahead to try to get, um, to try to meet some sort of a political deadline. It's crazy. Senator Batters, good talking to you. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it and uh, look forward to being on your show again. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Thank you. At Denise Batters on Twitter, at Denise Batters, Senator Denise Batters. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Doug, it's good to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time. How's the campaign going? You know, Roy, great to chat with you. And uh, The campaign's going uh, just just fabulous. It's, uh, it's tremendous to get out there and, and meet the people and and tell them how we're going to move this uh, province forward. And I'm hearing a lot of stories, and uh, they're, they're excited. What's the they're issue? Excited. What Doug, what's the issue that, that you find 
resonates most with the people you talk to? Well, finances and, and jobs, uh, obviously health care and education, they're, they're probably the, the top three, but uh, being overtaxed, people are sick and tired of being taxed, and every time they stick their hand in their pocket, they, they have Kathleen Wynne or their municipal government or, or uh, Justin Trudeau stick their hand in there, and uh, you know people are fed up with it. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the waste, the billions and billions of dollars of waste and the scandals, uh, people have had enough is enough, and we have to start respecting the taxpayer and putting money back into their pocket, uh, Roy, instead of the, the government's pocket. You know, Linda Leatherdale said something on this program on our Beauties on the Beast segment on Saturday two weeks ago. She said income tax should be affordable, and taxes should be affordable, and that really has gone out the window. And one of the issues, one of the key issues, Doug, I find, is the business community. The business community somehow with the federal government and the provincial government have become the enemy, whereas the business community, they're the people who provide the jobs. They're the people who grow the economy. These are the entrepreneurs who put their own money into it. So what does Doug Ford, as Premier of Ontario, do to support the provincial business community and stop people from thinking, maybe I should get out of here? Well, first of all, Roy, the first thing I'm going to do is uh, axe the carbon tax. The carbon tax, first of all, I don't even know why they have the word carbon in front of it. It's a tax. It's bad for business. It's bad for the people of Ontario. It's a job killer. I I, I think I told you this story before, but I apologize if I repeat it. A company that everyone knows, Campbell Soup, they closed down after 100 years being in Etobicoke, employing generations of people. And when I went and talked to them, the comments were, Doug, you know, the carbon tax is coming we have the highest uh, re- uh, property taxes, we have the highest water rates, the highest hydro rates, and how can we compete? The government is attacking the businesses instead of, instead of trying to help them. Hey, Roy, I get letters almost every week, even every second week, from, from states all, all around uh, the U.S. encouraging us to go down there, saying that you have a tax-free zone, we're going to help you with a building, will help you hire people as long as you hire people. And you see what's happening in the U.S., that their corporate tax rate was 36%, dropped down to 21%. There's trillions of dollars coming back mm-hmm. to the U.S. The yeah. unemployment's uh, one of the lowest in the last 20 years. Yeah. That's what we need to do for Ontario. We need to give these companies incentives. And I don't believe, and don't, don't, uh, I don't believe at all about the corporate tax, uh, I call it corporate welfare, I should say. I believe in incentives, not uh, corporate welfare. Well, you know, you've, you you have a situation where this province is in massive debt, huge, huge debt. Used to be the engine that drove uh, Ontario, or drove Canada. Now it's the caboose in many people's minds that's holding the country back because of all of the debt that was accumulated first by McGinty and then Wynne. So addressing debt is a huge issue. What's the what's the most fundamental thing you're, you're going to do? as premier to do that and simultaneously create a positive environment for business and lower taxes for the average Joe and Jane. Yeah. Well, well, first of all, I, I want to address one, one area that we can get money back. And we're giving, and people don't realize this, right? And I've heard you uh, say it a few times, but we're giving $469 billion to California and Quebec. For carbon credits, you have to be kidding me. We're going to keep that money in Ontario. 
And the waste at, at uh, Queen's Park is staggering. And I ask your listeners a very simple question, similar to what I ask everyone across Ontario, and I'm getting the same answer. Do you think we might be able to find three, three cents, maybe four cents on the dollar uh, of efficiencies when it comes to our government? The, the reaction is they usually break out laughing and they say only three to four percent. I'm the only one with a proven track record that's actually managed a, a budget. My, my three opponents, or four I should say, now, uh, they've, they've never managed a budget, ever. I understand what it takes to save a billion dollars. I understand what it takes to create jobs and cut taxes and put money back in the taxpayer's mm-hmm. pocket. My oppo- opponents have never done that. Uh, I don't believe they've ever had to even work in a factory and, and create jobs. Well, they've never, certainly none of them had to meet a payroll. Mm-hmm. You know, what or, or look at a P&L statement or go out in the back of the factory and talk to the people mm-hmm. that are working there here and, and on the other side of the border. So we have an opportunity here to make real, real strong changes throughout the province. You know what people and, want, Doug? They just want to feel yeah. like they're not being screwed anymore. Yeah. Well, they're, they've been getting screwed for a long time, right? They have. And all that screwing is going to stop when I'm premier. The party's over with Kathleen Wynne. The sole source deals are done. The political insiders and the political elites, they're done. I'm the only one out of our four other opponents that have the backbone to go there and do it. And, and I'm, I'm, you know, I think they're great people, but they're, they're liberal light. It's one thing to get rid of Kathleen Wynne and then put liberal light in there. And then there's another thing of making sure I get in there and we'll make comprehensive changes throughout the province and make sure there's accountability, integrity, and transparency. What about minimum wage? What do you do with that? Well, minimum wage, Roy, my my heart breaks for these people that are making, they were making $12 an hour, they're up to $14 an hour. And uh, on the other hand, it's hurting businesses. Overall, uh, there's going to be 60,000 jobs lost. My theory is very simple. They're walking out of the factory or the office with what, $48 uh, more uh, after they get taxed. The, the people that are gaining the money is the Liberal government. Their taxes are going to go up 34%, so they're gouging the little guy. What I believe in, someone making under 30000 uh, gets a 0% tax. That will help the businesses. We don't have to uh, increase the, the minimum wage. And the people that are walking out of their factories or their offices are going to end up with more money in their pocket, and the government's not going to be gaining. That's good. I mean, that's fundamentally sound. It, why tax the people who are at the, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but at the bottom of the, of the, of the salary scale, why tax them? Why, why charge them income tax? Let them, let them use the money that they are earning to their families and to their benefit. Don't give with one hand and take more with the other, which is what's going on now. And, and, and that's what's happening. It, may, it may, makes me laugh when I hear the, the mainstream liberal media uh, saying, well, what are you going to do with the, the carbon tax? It's basically, my friends listening, they're taking it out of the left pocket and trying to put it back in the right pocket. It doesn't work. It doesn't work, and I'm, I'm glad at least the... PC party has a candidate uh, now in, in the race that, that believes in a carbon tax, that believes there should be high taxes. I take a different approach. I'm dead against that. So what do you make then of Patrick Brown's return to the leadership chase? Well, you, you know something? I, I welcome him back. It's going to be a good race, but people are going to see a clear difference between myself 
and how we're going to move this uh, province forward and make it prosperous and put taxes back into the people's pocket compared to my other opponents. And it's not personal with them. They're, they're all nice people. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's liberal light versus making sure that we start respecting the taxpayers, challenging the bureaucrats, challenging the, the uh, as, I, as I say, the liberal uh, media, charging, uh, challenging the insiders and the establishment. If, I'll, I'll tell you, if we get liberal light in there, it's going to be the same old, same old. All right, Doug, so I have, to ask you, I have to ask you this in conclusion. People can trust you. People, you're telling me people can trust you that you will do everything that you say you're going to do. You're not going to go in there, become premier, come out to a news conference two days later and say, I didn't realize how big the mess is. I can't do half the things that I said I would do. You won't do that, right? Roy, let me tell you, I'm the only one, the only one running with an actual track record of saying we're going to do this, and we did it. I'm the only one with a track record that went down to City Hall, the most dysfunctional government, as far as I'm concerned, mm-hmm. in the country. In the first day, we were told that we we're facing $774 million of pressure, and meaning they spent $774 million more than what they had, and delivered a 0% tax increase. I was the only one down there that sat on budget, went line item by line item for four years, and saved the taxpayers of Toronto over a billion dollars. Yeah. I will do the same for the province. What the Ford say they're going to do, we do it. We have a proven track record, unlike my opponents. Well, I said years ago, and literally years ago, that I would like to vote for somebody who has actually had to meet a payroll, somebody who actually understands the value of money, somebody who doesn't believe there's just a never-ending supply that can be picked out of my pocket and everybody else's pocket around. Doug, thanks for the time today. We'll touch base again, and uh, best of luck. Thanks so much, Roy. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. I had an opportunity to uh, meet a remarkable, remarkable woman uh, by phone a number of years ago under very, very trying circumstances. Marquita Collius, uh, daughter, is 22 years of age. And she was, uh, she was a victim of a, an impaired driver, of a drunk driver in British Columbia, 22 years of age. Marquita's uh, daughter was killed in the accident, and the drunk driver received the usual uh, generous sentence that Canadian criminal courts hand out if you're inebriated and you kill, which is basically nothing. You can get as little as one day, and if, at the outside, they'll give you four, and you'll serve maybe two or a year and a half. Well, Marquita Collier formed an organization called Families for Justice, and they have an e-petition up now that you can still sign on to, which is calling for, Marquita, thank you for joining us. It's calling for minimum sentences for people who drive drunk and who kill. Please tell us about that. Thank you, Roy, for having me here. Yes, this is an opportunity for the public to go online and have a voice. Um, we've been asking for tougher sentencing laws because we've seen ridiculous sentences you know, given out over the last seven years of you know, one day in jail, 90 days to be served on weekends, $1,500 fines, and these are all for fatalities. So this petition is available online through people can Google on the Internet and go to petition E1327. It's called When a Drunk Driver Kills. 
and they can just submit their support on there. Um, it's just an online petition. takes the public two minutes to do. It's only available online now until Tuesday, February 20th. There is a deadline for this, so we're hoping that those listeners that are listening today will go online, sign it, and then share it with their friends and families as well. Um, it can also be found on our Fam- Families for Justice Facebook page um, as well if people want to do that, and we hope that they will because, you know, none, none of us ever expect to lose a loved one to an impaired driver, and sadly there are thousands of us every year in Canada that do. Happens every day? Every day. Every day there are four to six people a day killed in Canada to an impaired driver, and 190 a day are injured. And never has government and never has the justice system properly uh, ad- ad- addressed no. the issue of drunk driving. They've never made it as an issue where people will know if they drive drunk and kill that there are going to be significant consequences, and well, that's what has to be there. Significant consequences, and that's the problem. And people know now that they, you know, they might lose their, be suspended for 24 hours or maybe 90 days, and most of the time it's a credit card fine. But when someone's actually killed and an innocent person is killed and a life is lost, you know, our courts still consider impaired driving an accident. And there's nothing about it that it's an accident. Uh, no. Impaired driving is a willful choice made by people who choose to put others at risk on our roadways and highways. And yeah. people who drive drunk and kill are not always remorseful for what they've done. No, we've seen that quite often. Many of these uh, offenders are repeat offenders. They have been charged multiple times with impaired driving. And because our our laws are so lax, I mean, people, it's very well known in, in the jails, there's a, there's a saying that goes, go ahead and do the crime because you're not going to serve the time. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine, can you imagine a system that says to a defendant, yeah, you drove drunk, yes, you killed, and we feel that, we feel you should do one day yes. in in, in incarceration. One day. Yeah. One, because that happens, does yeah. it not? I was actually told by a lawyer in my daughter's case that because my daughter was just 22, she wasn't married, she had no dependents. In the eyes of the court, she's worth zero. Oh, my God. Very tough to hear as a parent, you know. And uh, I, like, I, I tell people, I'm, I've been fighting this now for seven years. I'm not doing this for me. I've already lost my child. I am fighting for everyone else out there to try and protect them from losing their children because we know there will be four more mothers and fathers today that will have that police officer come to the door to inform them that their loved one has sadly been killed by a drunk driver. So it's petition E-1327. E-1327. And uh, like I say, it's, they feel, people can Google that number and it will come up on the Internet. They can go and sign it. They can also be found... Uh, on our Facebook page, our Families for Justice Facebook page, it's called When a Drunk Driver Kills. And it's also on the conservative MP, Michael Cooper, his on his website as well. So okay. we please, we, we're just begging the public to please go and sign this, share it with your friends. We only have two more days to do this. But we want, really want the government to know that Canadians are asking for changes in our laws. And uh, these, this particular is for mandatory minimums when someone kills someone. Are you asking for, does the petition ask for a minimum time, or is it just looking for we a We ask for a minimum of five years. Five I mean, years. people don't realize, too, when someone's given an actual prison sentence, that's not the time they serve. No. If they do federal time, they can apply for parole uh, after one-sixth of their sentence. So six months into it, they can already apply for parole. 
um, most uh, impaired driving, if they get a two- to three-year sentence, they're out in about six to eight months. Yeah. Marquita, all the very best. Uh, you do a lot for so many people, and you've experienced and suffered so much. Thank and you. you're a very caring human being. I thank you. Your petition is E1327. It'll take you a few seconds to do it online, E1327, or go to Families for Justice Facebook page. All the best, Marquita. Thank you very much. Take thank care. You. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.